You're listening to a podcast of The River in Durant, Oklahoma. Join us Sundays at 10 a.m. or Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Or learn more about us online at theriverdurant.com. Take a Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. A message I preached here about two and a half years ago. And it is one of the most important messages the Lord ever gave me. It's one I should preach every year, but I just haven't. But there are so many more people here now than what were here two and a half years ago. that I feel like some of you need to hear this message. Many of you need to hear this message. It's a message entitled, A New Day. A New Day. Hebrews chapter 9. And if you all, those of you who were here when I preached this message, if you know where I'm going with this, just grin and smile and act like you don't know what I'm about to say <laughs> for the sake of the other hundred who hadn't heard it. We are blessed to tell you to, to, today, except for, last, except for Easter Sunday when we had 194 people here, today is a, on, on a, just a regular Sunday morning. This is a record crowd of 176 people in the building today. We're, we're very, uh, very blessed. It's crazy, Dylan. Who's doing that? There has to be an invisible force building a church. Amen. Jesus said, upon this rock I'll build my church. And he wasn't talking about Peter. He was talking about what Peter said. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We've got to keep talking about Jesus being the Christ. Hallelujah. So um, in this message of New Day, I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1. Now, I'm, my habit is to read the entire passage and go back and talk about it from an outline. I'm not going to do that today. We're just going to read it together. I'm going to read verse 1 and talk to you, read verse 2 and talk to you, read verse 3 and talk to you, okay? Can you handle that? Can you handle a little theology today? i got eight people that like theology, but the rest of you are just going to have to bear with me. <laughs> theology is really just the study of God. There are two aspects of the way preachers approach the Bible, theology and doctrine. The theological part of the Bible is not to, anything to be afraid of or to be ashamed of. It is just the approach from God's point of view what the covenant means from God's point of view. Th doctrine is really our point of view. Theology can be summed up in this, in the new covenant, really with the word grace. God is now pr providing grace through the cross of Jesus Christ. He provided grace for all of man. That's God's part. The doctrine part is our part, which is faith. Believing what God has done will work for me. Christ died for our sins, the Bible says, according to the scriptures, and he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The problem with the reason why most people, so many people, are not living by the, by the gospel is because they hadn't heard the real gospel. They keep hearing the gospel about what you've got to do rather than, what about, uh, rather than what about Christ did. Christ is the one who died for our sins. I didn't. Christ is the one who was buried. I wasn't. Christ is the one who rose again the third day. I wasn't the one. Christ did. You're not the one. It's all about Christ. And all your response is, is to believe this. It gets all fouled up. It gets all fouled up. And convoluted. So we're going to talk about what Christ did and what it means to be in a covenant with God. From Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Now, when it says the first covenant here in this, in this context, it's not talking about the covenant God made with Noah. 
He did make a covenant with Noah. Y'all remember that in Genesis chapter 8, after he came down, God made a covenant with Noah involving the rainbow and all that and seed time and harvest. God's not talking about that here. He's not talking about that as the first covenant. He means the first covenant that was system-wide. That was for all of his people. It was all of his people. Now, that covenant of Noah was system-wide, but it's, it's, it's universal in nature. This is not universal in nature, the, the law of Moses, but it was system-wide in that if you were going to walk with God, you had to keep the law. Now, this is a, talking about a different walk. The second covenant, which is our covenant, the last covenant, if you will, he draws a contrast. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. I looked that word worldly up and it's the same word they use for being sinful. Now I don't know what you think about a worldly sanctuary, a worldly holy place, but that's what the Bible teaches about the old way. It's not my words, I didn't write it, but it's in the Bible. It's what the Bible teaches, and you've got to get used to this idea. If you're going to live under the grace of God like you're supposed to and understand the grace of God, you have to understand what the law is not. The law is not a faith. The law can never be a faith. And no matter how many laws you give yourself, you'll never rise to the occasion of being made righteous. You can try hard, but if your law won't keep you, if, if God's law won't make you righteous, how are you going to come up with a law that makes you righteous? The apostle Paul didn't say the law of Moses. He said the law of God. The law of God. It had a name. The law of God was the law that Moses wrote. And it was not powerful enough to make anybody righteous. It was worldly. I didn't write the book. I'm just brave enough to tell you what it says. God's service through worldly means is just as worldly as anything man-made. Being a religious legalist makes you just as worldly as a person living in sin. Religious legalism is ungodly, unholy, and worldly. And demonic. Demonically inspired. You've got to hear this. It denigrates the grace of God. It spews in the face of God His ultimate and holy grace that brought us into this thing in the first place. You need to hear the truth today. Verse 2, for there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. These are the three primary pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, the, the inner court. And the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. Oh, the holy of holies, we call it, which had the golden censer. And the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had the manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. Wow. So the tabernacle was laid out in three pieces sort of like this auditorium is. This auditorium, this building rather, is laid out with an outer court, the foyer, an inner court, what we call, to still call this, place, this, this room right here, what do we call it? The sanctuary. Of course we do. We got it from the Bible to call it that. Not that we believe that stepping into this sanctuary makes you holy or that you particularly have to be holy to get here. Let's hope that we don't require people to be made holy before they come into our sanctuary. Let's hope because we're not going to get anybody saved in here if, that, if that's where it has to be. Let's hope that sinners are invited to church. How many of you sinners were glad you were invited? Yeah, amen. You weren't invited that day you weren't invited that day, 
In that day, you were exiled. You were uninvited. Somebody ought to be thankful for being in the new covenant today. I can just get the preachers to hear me and let the people of God live in the new covenant rather than always dragging them back into the law. Yeah, you come in by grace, but after you're in, boy, it's harder than hell to stay. Did that actually come out of my mouth or was I just thinking it? <laughs> well, you were thinking it. I mean, it, that's what religion does to you. Let you in easy, but like a, like, a, like a shady car salesman, make it harder to stay than it is to get in. All right. There are three things in that verse 4 that were in the Ark of the Covenant. That is in the very presence of God. The bread, the bud, and the Bible. Don't get excited, guys. They're not talking about Budweiser. They're talking about that Aaron's rod that budded. <laughs> the bread, the bud, and the Bible. Remember? The, the, the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. That is the Ten Commandments etched in stone. Those three represent to us Three manifestations of the Word of God. I'm going to teach you how to, how to read symbolisms. Three manifestations of the Word of God. The first, the bread. Who is the bread? Jesus is represented there. The second, the Bible, the Scriptures are represented there. The book you hold in your hand. And the other, the bud, Aaron's rod that budded. Aaron was the chief spokesman for Moses, for God, and for Moses and for God to the people of God. That is the preaching. So God has three ways of manifesting his word. The Bible, the Lord Jesus personally, and the preaching of the word. That's still in force today. And that's really what is in force and has always been in force for, from, from God's point of view. The Bible wasn't written when Moses started writing it. We've already discussed it. The Bible was actually written in glory somewhere a long time before Moses wrote it down. You may not believe this, but I know this for a fact. Because in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1, we looked at it not long ago. Take your Bible quickly and turn to Genesis 15, 1. Or if I can get it up on the board, it would be nice. Genesis 15, 1. And after these things, the word of the Lord came into Abraham in a, in a, in a voice. No. In a rumor. No. In something he heard. No. The word of the Lord come to him in something he saw. Now you can't see an invisible word unless it's written down. The word of the Lord came to him. It didn't say the Lord came. It said the word came to him in a vision. Now that answers another, another problem we had chronologically in Galatians chapter 3 in verse 8. Somebody take your Bible and turn to Galatians 3, 8. I want you to compare these and see if I'm telling you the truth. If I'm not telling you the truth, <clears throat> prove it to me and I'll change. I won't argue with you about it, but if you can show me I'm not telling you the truth, then I'll just change. I won't even pray about it, I'll just change. But I'm going to ask you, when you find that I am telling you the truth, and I am, I want you to change. Is that too, is that too much to ask? We got a deal? I'll change if you can prove it to me. Good luck. 
Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, who saw that God would foresaw, would foresaw, who foresaw that God would justify the heathen through faith? God or the scriptures? The scriptures. The subject of the, of the verse is scriptures. And every, and every translation says it exactly the same way. Exactly the same way. Preached the gospel before unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Abraham lived 400 years before the scriptures were, were pinned down by, by Moses. But that says that the scriptures talked to Abraham. When? When he saw it in a vision. And there was not one word to Abraham about how repentant he needed to be. His righteousness did not come because he repented. He had been an idol worshiper on the other side of the flood, it said, on the other side of the river. His family were idol worshipers. And there was never a time where God told him to repent of anything. God counted his righteousness as though he had repented the moment he simply believed the promise. Men repent all the time and never get saved. Only those who believe are the ones who are saved. And God counts it to them, according to Acts chapter 11, as repentance. It's because the preachers love to preach repentance. They just won't do it themselves when they hear me talk. <laughs> Hypocrites. Verse 5. I'm not really angry today. I'm not really angry. Had nothing to do with me. I'm just fired up. That's right. <laughs> and over it, this box, this, this golden box called the Ark of the Covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, what that means is they lost the, the Ark of the Covenant, the one that Moses had built, Moses and Aaron had crafted. They, they lost it. It got stolen and taken away and gone. Gone, gone, gone. We don't even know where it is. But there are, there are, there are hints about where it might be in the earth. We don't know. We don't know if it was melted down. We don't know if it still exists in some form. It's not even important because the power of God no longer rests there. The power of God rests to see where at? At the river in Durant, Oklahoma. <laughs> in you. And in, every, in the heart of every believer, every person who loves Jesus has the power of God resident in them. The presence of God is in every believer, not just at the river. Amen. Over at the cherubim of glory, shattering the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. What it means is we don't have the actual details. We don't know what it actually looked like now. But in, in Israel, Miss Ann and I just went to Israel last May, and we saw something there, a replica of the, of the Ark of the Covenant, the way the Jews saw it. And it was pretty spooky looking. <laughs> you'd, you'd, think you'd, you'd think you'd go, oh, that's lovely. Go, oh, that's kind of weird. I want angels' faces to look Renaissancean. You know what I mean? I'm used to angels being painted by Renaissance masters of Europe, and they look really lovely. These guys look like space aliens. I, I don't, I, it was, ugh. I didn't enjoy it all that much. I thought I'd really like it. You won't like it either. Yeah, sit there with that bacon on your breath and act like you're all Jewish. <laughs> I know you stopped by McDonald's on the way here. I know. <laughs> but there, there it was. But it, the, the key thing to remember there is that there were two angels, not three. 
There are three angels, premier angels, talked about in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. There were three. There was Gabriel, there was Michael, and there was Lucifer. Lucifer, a third. But notice who's missing? There are just two over this ark. By the time Moses builds the ark, God just has two angels he's impressed with. And I think that those two angels on top of that box are representative of Gabriel and Michael. Now, you, knew, you, you know that they had, they had special assignments, Gabriel, Michael, and Lucifer. Casey, you go, you're going to love what I say here. Gabriel was the pastor. He did all the preaching. Michael was the warrior, apparently did all the praying. And Lucifer was the worship leader. <laughs> Perry said, I really must have read that wrong. <laughs> but in Lee, in, indeed, he was the worshiper. What we have now is not worshipers, professional worshipers. We have worship leaders Amen. who lead all of God's choir in worship. We don't, we don't say, come in and stand in here and watch us worship like they did back then. They said, come here and let us lead you into worship. It's a different thing. God substituted the whole body of Christ as worshipers when, when Lucifer fell. Now, verse 6, Now when these things were thus ordained, the, the, the priests went always into the tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. So when he's talking about the tabernacle, he's talking about the tabernacle of Moses. And there were three. There were three authorized forms of worship in the Old Testament. The first was the tabernacle of Moses. The second was the tabernacle of David. And the third was the temple of Solomon. All honored by God's presence. The tabernacle of Moses, the, temp the tabernacle of David, and the temple of Solomon. The New Testament in Acts chapter 15, and I'm not going to take a lot of time to document this, but just go there yourself if you like. The New Testament identifies the tabernacle of David as now being represented, as then being representative of the New Testament Gentile church. The Gentile church. It is specific in Acts 15, the very first council of the church, they get together and they say that the Gentile church is the tabernacle of David, which means that the tabernacle of Moses was in force all the way up until Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, the first Gentile got saved without being circumcised. Well, that's good right there. That's good right there. And then the tabernacle of David began. All of that was, 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 was a picture for us. The tabernacle of David began and is still in it. But that also means that this day is coming to an end. The tabernacle of David day is coming to an end. And the temple of Solomon is going to be built then. It's going to be rebuilt on that temple mount. There's going to be a war breakout. But the church will be gone. Because God will change, take his way of doing business and give it back to Israel. Praise God. That's why there must be an Israel in the earth. That's why we must support Israel. That's why we must vote out every president that doesn't like Israel. Thank you for your enthusiasm. Verse 7. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year and without blood, which he offered, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Let me say something to you here about this verse. You need to know that the high priest existed for one primary reason. The high priest existed for one primary reason, and it is the reason why Jesus is in heaven right now as the high priest. Not as the judge, as the high priest. The Father acts as the judge, 
and Jesus acts as our high priest. The reason why the high priest existed was for one primary reason, that is to deal with the errors of God's people. He, was, he existed as high priest. That office exists to deal with the errors of God's people. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, not to see how quickly he can catch you doing something wrong, but to ensure that you make it to heaven. He's there at the right hand of the Father, working for you all the time, mediating his blood, whether you confess it or not. He's there as a, as a memorial of Almighty God and his work because he rose from the dead. He sits there. And when God thinks about Adam, he looks to his right and sees the last Adam. And doesn't think about man as the first Adam. He thinks about man as the last Adam, seated at his own right hand. There is a man. I don't care what you like about this, what you don't like about this. You're going to hear the truth today. There is a man seated at the right hand of Almighty God. His name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. A man. You sound like you worship a man. I do. A resurrected God man. Praise God. He's the one we keep exalting. The one we talk about constantly. The one I can't get over. I got over all the other gods I used to worship. You can get over them. I promise you, you can get over those other gods you've worshipped. You may have dragged some of them in here with you today. <laughs> but you can get over it. You can get through with it. Glory to God. The high priest existed to deal with the errors of God's people to ensure their passage and their walk with God. When he went to the, when the high priest Aaron went into the uh, Holy of Holies and brought the blood in there to, into the Holy of Holies. Do you know they were still in the process of killing Canaanites? He puts the blood on the Holy of Holies, on the altar, presents it before Almighty God, and Gentiles are dying outside the camp because of their sinfulness, their ugliness, they're killing their women, their children, their babies, their everything. The war was on with Israel. They were purifying their land. Even children were dying. And Aaron's in there making, making peace with God. It didn't help anybody but the people of God. Jesus is not seated at the right hand of the Father for the world. He hung on a cross for the world. That's enough. He's seated at the right hand of the Father for you. Oh, glory. Glory to God. He's seated at the right hand of the Father for the church. Because he's not going to change his mind about you. You stinky thing, you. But Pastor, you don't know what I've done. I've been a bad little sheep. Bad. Yeah, I know you've been bad. But that's why you have a high priest. Oh, I don't know how God could take me. I've done so many bad things. Well, I know. But he didn't save you because you were good. He saved you because you were stupid. Come on, any stupid Christians in here used to be at least? Coming through it. I mean, we're coming through it, but we still need a high priest. I still need my high priest. I don't know if you do, but I do. Miss Ann doesn't much, but I do. No, we all need the high priest. On the cross, Jesus was a savior for the whole world. But in the mercy seat, 
He's the high priest for believers only. He's not watching to make, you, make sure you don't sin so he can get you for it. He's alive to oversee and to secure your arrival in heaven. Come on, somebody say amen. It's Verse 8, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the, whilst the first covenant, the tabernacle was, was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices and could not, everybody say could not, could not, then say would not, said could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. There was nothing about the forgiveness system of the old covenant that ever could make a man perfect. But if you're a believer in Jesus, this is indicating that you have been made perfect. That God doesn't start with a seed to help you arrive at perfection. God starts with perfection and helps you to flourish from there on. Helps you to take your spirit man and take his counsel, that, that perfect inner you, that's why you don't need a preacher to run around chasing you around telling you what you need to do, what you need to grow, up, grow, grow out or cut off. Like your hemline or your hairdo. If the Holy Ghost isn't talking to you about it, there's a good chance that preacher just made up that sin. Is it quiet in here or is it just me? The Holy Ghost is signifying that the very holiest of holies was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. The holiest, the holiest of holies was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle. Well, he said, they're saying that it wasn't even manifested what, it was, what its purpose was or that the real one had not existed yet. But it did. It just wasn't manifested because the real one was in heaven. The new covenant makes you perfect first inside. And God is willing to wait for everything else to show. He makes you first perfect inside. You know, you think a bad thought or dirty thought or something, some, some evil thought. Your heart talks to you before you can get it out of your mouth. Your heart will talk to you before you can even get it out of your mouth. If you learn to listen to your heart. Because that inner man is made perfect. Perfect. I hear Christians say it. I, I, I'm a director of a Bible college in Dallas where our average age there is 19. That tells you how many 17, 18 year olds we have. A bunch. Because we have a lot of married students. And it's amazing how often a 19 year old will walk in your office and try to convince you that they accidentally sinned. I mean it. Well, I didn't mean to do that. If you didn't mean to do it, why'd you do it? Well, I, I couldn't help it. No, 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 no. Back up. Back up. That, uh, that's only true if you're not saved. Now, what are we talking about? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm saved. Then you could help it. You just need to take responsibility. You never get over the issues of your life by not taking responsibility. But listen to me, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation to those who are walking after the Spirit, not after the flesh. Amen. Not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So as long as you're walking in the Spirit, and that doesn't mean doing everything right. That just means being conscious of your spirit, man, who you really are in Christ, keeping your faith engaged to Him. Amen. Not on how well you perform. If you're always trying to perform well, you will always goof up. 
How many of you make New Year's resolutions? Let me see the hand. How many of you make New Year's resolutions? How many of you used to? Ah. And you quit because you couldn't do it. I made it all the way to Valentine's Day one time. Six weeks, man. It was horror. It was terrible. It was awful. My life was miserable for six weeks. I've lost that same 10 pounds for every six, six, six weeks. Of it. <laughs> That's where the world starts. And there's nothing wrong with a New, Year, New Year's resolution. Do it. It's fine. Do it. It's fine. God put us on a cycle. We can kind of start over. We get to start over every morning, in fact. You know what I'm saying? It's all right. But I'm just saying, if you add the legal constraints to it that most of us do to everything else, it makes, it, makes you completely incapable of keeping it. Yeah. Verse 10, where it stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal, or, carnal ordinances. Carnal ordinances. He's calling the word of God carnal ordinances. This is why you have to be careful what you read from the Old Testament and try to apply to yourself. Because you've got to read the New Testament. Let's learn what the New Testament teaches us before we get so all, in, all embroiled up in what the Old Testament has to say. I'm not saying throw it away. I'm not saying tear it out of your Bible. I'm just saying that he calls some of the ordinances carnal. And I hear a lot of preaching out of the Old Testament that is carnal and worldly as though it's the message of God for today. It's not. It can't possibly be if it's carnal and worldly as this says it is. He's not talking about some ordinances that, 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 that the rabbis thought up. He's talking about what is written in the law of Moses. Yeah. We have to be brave enough to say this. Yeah. Have to be brave enough to believe this. Be brave enough. Yes, it is the word of God. It is God's message. The Bible is all, all God's message, but it's not all God's message to you. One person believes me. Make sure you get the part that's to you. Because that high priest wasn't to you. Remember, you're not the Jew in the story of the Old Testament. You're the Canaanite. You are the Gentile that's worthy of death. You're not the Jew. Catfish eaters, praise God. Bottom feeders. <laughs> you see, and so imposed on, imposed on them until the time. Did you know that word until means something's about to change big? Yeah. Yeah. My mama used to use that word on me. You just wait until your daddy gets home. I knew my life was going to change. <laughs> How many of you had a mama like that? You just wait until I get back. You just wait until, when I, if I was waiting until something, I knew that everything was going to change for me. Right there, right there, right there. You just wait until, just wait until. Well, he puts an until word in here. This, these ordinances were imposed on them until the time of reformation. When was the time of reformation? Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And he was buried. And he rose again the third day. This is the great reformation. Not the one Martin Luther led in 1517. This one is the great reformation. This one is the one that changed the world forever. And there's no going back. Come on, somebody say, no going back. 
Reformation means the setting straight. The, 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 the Greek word there is actually means to set things straight. Wow. So the law was a, and a par paragraphical thing. It was, it was a not paragraphical, uh, parenthetical. Is that right? Parenthetical. That's the word. It was a parenthetical thing, meaning it was just added. It was just stuck in there because this is the true, because this harkens back way past the law, how people are made righteous. It harkens all the way back to Abraham. I already brought up Genesis 15, 1, how he saw the word written. But 15, 6 says, and he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, accounted it to Abraham for righteousness. This harkens back to getting your righteousness the same way the father of all faith did. Amen. By believing the promise of God. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come. Do you know he's not a high priest of bad things to come? He's a, he's a high priest of good things to come. Everybody say, he has good news for me. By a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not, not of this building. Good things to come, not impending doom. You ask some people, are you going to heaven? And most people will say something like this. Well, I hope so. <laughs> you know why? You know why they can't be sure? Because they have this sense of impending doom. They don't know that Christ has assured them of good things to come. Because they're trusting in their own abilities to get to heaven rather than fully and completely trusting in Christ. If I'm trusting in Christ, I know I'm going to heaven because he's there. If I'm trusting in Jesus, he's there. I know I'm going to heaven. And you can know it if you trust Jesus, if you believe on him. But if you're still trusting on how well you perform, it's a, I sure hope so. We've got our fingers crossed. Verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, by his own blood he entered in once into the holy, holy place, having obtained part-time redemption for us. What does it say? Eternal redemption for him? Or who is it for? If it's, if it's for me and I can lose it every few days, it ain't eternal. You can't call it eternal if it's mine. Mind the right house, you've got to hear the words of the scriptures. You've got to slow down enough just to hear what it's actually saying. He obtained eternal redemption for you. And you can't get it after you go to heaven. You can't get it after you die. You've got to get it now or you never get it at all. And if I get it now and it's eternal now, that means you tell me how that ends. Tell me how that ends. Every Christian I know, if I ask them, do you have everlasting life? They say, yes, I have everlasting life. Say, well, how could you lose it? Well, if I do something bad. <laughs> so it wasn't eternal at all, was it? Wasn't eternal at all. It was part time. It's a hope so. It's a maybe. If I do good. So you're trusting in you again. See, see, see how see the, the loopy cycle it's in that religion puts us in? To let, rather than let us believe God once and for all, and get on and live our lives to win other people to Jesus rather than always trying to stay saved ourselves. All your energy is about trying to go to heaven instead of trying to take other people with you. Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to make you 
witnesses so that you'll be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and, Jeru and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. Amen. Glory to God. Eternal redemption for us. Verse 13. For with the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh. How much more? Everybody say, how much more? How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more? He does not purge our conscience if we serve God. He purged our conscience so we could serve God. That's what the Bible teaches. He purged your conscience so you could serve God. And for this cause, he is a mediator of a new covenant. I, I have to tell you something. I've pastored different kinds of churches before. I'm not really the pastor here. Miss Ann's really the pastor here. I serve in an apostolic role here in this church. And if that word scares you, I don't care. <laughs> Read your Bible. It's in there. But I've pastored numbers of churches, taken churches, started churches, done all kinds of things. The churches that I took over after other people sometimes were highly legalistic. On a couple of occasions, the churches were very legalistic. One church didn't like women preachers at all. I said, what are you going to do with, about Paul and Priscilla and Aquila? What are you going to do about Phoebe? What are you going to do about lots and lots of others? Mary Magdalene, for Pete's sake, who was the primary witness of the resurrection. By the way, you know this is one of the reasons why we, why we know that that story is true. Who would make it up that he rose from the dead? Who would make the story up and say, and by the way, this ex-prostitute, this ex-demon-possessed prostitute is the first one to see him. Yeah. <laughs> why would you pick her to be your first witness if you were making the story up? You'd say, no, the king came down there and saw it himself. They just told the story like it really was. She actually saw him. Amen. This cause he's a mediator of a new covenant. And I found something interesting about the churches that I've pastored. One real strong legalistic congregation was the filthiest bunch of people I'd ever pastored. Filthy bunch of people. I'm not going to tell you where it was. I'll just tell you, Okies, it was in Texas, so don't be. <laughs> Relax. There was so much perversion in that church, and it, and it didn't come out till, till some time later. People sitting on the front row, hopping up down, jumping, worshiping Jesus, you know, living in adultery. Not just fornication, adultery. Ex-husband sitting in the back of the room. I didn't know any of this. Their former pastor had been a heavy-handed legalist. And they'd come to church and let him beat them up. And they'd go out and live their lives the way they wanted to. They felt like they were paying their dues when they came to church. Then they beat them up. And they felt good for a day or so. Then they'd be right back to their old selves. That was, their, that was the way they'd set up their lives to live. Are you listening to me? Since I started preaching strong faith and grace message. And I've been, been believing it my, my, most of my Christian experience. But when I started just preaching it, I found... That that all by itself cleans up God's people. All by itself cleans up God's people. 
The cleanest churches I've ever pastored were these churches that were full of grace and faith. The Holy Ghost has freedom then to do it all by himself. I don't have to follow anybody around and say, you better not sin today. Take this tape home with you and memorize these things that are sins. I made some of them up just for your benefit. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. If I preach enough faith and grace to you, when you leave here, the Holy Ghost will be talking to you and your heart will be open to hear your Father's voice. Your heart will be open to hear His voice. You won't be terrorized by Him. You won't be afraid of Him. People who love the law tend to hate God anyway. Oh yeah, yeah they do. Nobody loved the law more than the Pharisees. But when God came walking in human flesh, did they love Him? No, they hated Him. Legalists always hate God on one level. And they hate this message. Yeah, the Bible says, for the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Did you notice which side truth was on? Not on the side of the law. It's on the side of grace. And you hear idiot preachers say, well, I know I'm going to be gracious and merciful to you, but I'm still going to tell you the truth like he's going to preach the law to you. Grace is the truth, bozo. Grace is the truth. Take that, devil. And for this cause, he is a mediator of a new covenant. Come on, say it's a new day. Amen. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Eternal inheritance, praise God. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament, that is a will, is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is no strength at all while the testator liveth. Listen to me. Here's another joke of religion. Religion tells us you get your inheritance, you get to go to heaven, and you get all these good things in heaven. But until then, God no longer heals, God no longer prospers anybody, the prosperity message is bad, the healing message is bad, God doesn't do anything for anybody. We pray about it, but we don't really expect answers to prayer. We pray for the sick, but we don't really expect God to do anything. God doesn't want to give you anything, don't believe that prosperity preacher. He's lying to you, they'll say. They're talking about me. <laughs> don't believe that. Because he, 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 you don't get any of that until you get to heaven. You hear what a perverted joke that is? In their world, the beneficiary has to die before he gets his stuff. Rather than the, rather than the benefactor who wrote the will. I'm here to announce today that all the promises of God went into force when Jesus died, not when you died. Come on, somebody say amen. amen. Wherefore, neither the first testament was delivered, de 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 dedicated, sorry, dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats and of water with water and scarlet and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and the people. I'm going to stop right there. I'm just tired. <laughs> it's 10 minutes till 12. And I know y'all want to beat the Baptist to the restaurant. I'm going to make this two messages. If you'll come back next Sunday, I promise to finish it. How many of you think you'll come back next Sunday? You come back next Sunday, 
And I'll finish this message. Has it been good so far? Did you learn anything? It's okay to learn something and have a good time at the same time, isn't it? All right. Now let's bow our heads and pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. Thank you, Lord, for the way you bless us and heal us and prosper us and make everything that's good with, it, with an anticipation of good things to come. Christ is the mediator and the high priest of good things to come. I thank you for these that are gathered here, my Father, and I pray for everyone here who is yet to come into this covenant. You brought them here today. You brought them here in record numbers for this congregation. Lord, I'm asking you to bless them. Bless them and let them see how much you love them today. I want to say to those of you who are here in this place this morning, who yet to come to a saving knowledge of Christ, you've heard about him, you know about him, but you've never personally said, Jesus, I believe in you. I, I, I want you to in my life. Today's the day for that for you. You've never had a better opportunity to believe on Jesus and hear the gospel message than this moment right here. Christ died for your sins. That is, whatever you're doing wrong, whatever you've lived and whatever you've done that, that you're ashamed of, he died for that. He didn't die for it today. He died for it 2,000 years ago. You're just hearing the message today. And the message is the power of God to save you. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Christ died for you, for your sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scripture, just like the Bible says. All that happened and all of it happened for you. For you. For you to hear the message and say, I believe that. If you're here today and that's you, without anybody looking around, would you just raise a hand and let me pray for you right where you are? 